Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Jeffrey Weeks is a writer, an activist, and a pioneering historian of sexuality. His 1975 article in History Workshop Journal, Sins and Diseases, Some Notes on Homosexuality in the 19th Century, was a pathbreaking exploration of the emergence of gay identities and the historical forces on which it turned. That early article would help launch a long and deeply engaged career with a string of books that include Coming Out, Homosexual Politics in Britain from the 19th Century to the Present, Sex Politics and Society, The Regulation of Sexuality Since 1800, and The World We Have Won, The Remaking of Erotic and Intimate Life. This week, to mark the publication of History Workshop Journal's virtual special issue on the history of sexualities, we talk to Jeffrey Weeks about the relationship between his writing and his activism, the birth of his historical imagination, and how, in writing the history of sexuality, the personal and the political inevitably collide. I spoke to Jeffrey Weeks at his home in London. So I did want to start out with your sins and diseases piece. You know, it went into the first issue of the journal in 1976, and that was well before work, well, well before there was really a field called the history of sexuality, and well before mainstream historical journals were publishing anything remotely related. So I wondered if you could talk a bit about the the genesis of the piece. Yeah, it um, had an interesting genesis because I was trained as a historian and my postgraduate research was on uh, late 19th century, early 20th century socialist political thought in Britain. And in the end, I gave up the PhD and did an MPhil on that to get it over with. And later, of course, I had to catch up and do a different PhD. Nevertheless, I decided that what I wanted to do was do more research on sexuality, particularly um, gay sexuality because I was heavily involved in the gay movement and I wanted to learn more about the antecedents of the gay movement and I wanted to reflect my own experiences and think what it meant to talk about sexual identity and uh, sexual community and social movements and all that sort of thing. So I began writing on two books, desperately ambitiously, and I was lucky enough to get contracts uh, for both those Um, And the books eventually became um, Coming Out and Sex, Politics and Society. So I had the contracts, but I didn't have much research. So (laughs) I I did the research to write the books rather than did the research and then try to get a contract. So I did it all the wrong way around, just by chance and luck, because I found publishers who were interested. And I needed the spur anyway of... uh, of doing it. So I, I began writing short pieces as contributions to the longer work. And I'd been to several events at Ruskin for History Workshop. And I was at the event where they um, announced that a journal was going to be um, published. And I was very excited by that. And I think it was Anna Davin or Sally Alexander, or perhaps both, who said would you like to write something for our first uh, uh, volume? 
I, very nervously I said yes because I knew this would be my first piece in um, a sort of academic journal the history workshop was never quite that I think Anna said we, we're starting the series called uh, Work in Progress because I demurred and said I don't think I've got enough work done yet and Anna said well we're doing a series called Work in Progress it would fit into that so the die was cast and that's how I wrote that piece um, and it summed up the work I had done so far for those books. In a sense, it changed everything because I gained self-confidence, obviously, by doing it, having feedback from Anna and Sally, who were the editors, at least of that bit of the work. I had a very positive reaction after it was published. So I think it gave me the self-confidence to go on and finish the other books. Now the very first book I was commissioned to do was Sex, Politics and Society but I decided to complete uh, Coming Out first and in the meantime between being commissioned to do those two books and finishing them Sheila Robottom and I conceived of a project to do what became Socialism and the New Life. She did an essay on Edward Carpenter and I did an essay on Havelock Ellis. Now I mention that because in a strange sort of way, it was a return to my very first postgraduate research because I'd been researching at the end of the 19th century, researching socialist thinkers, had encountered the work of Carpenter and Ellis. But in my ignorance at that time, I hadn't seen, or willfully did not see, the sexual connotations, well, Havelock Ellis is obvious, but not so obvious for Carpenter, I saw them as socialist intellectuals or radical intellectuals. But of course, they were at the roots of many of the things I subsequently wrote about and continue to write about ever since. So there was a nice serendipity in that there wasn't a sense of rupture between my early work and later work, but actually a nice continuity, which I hadn't at first realised. Mm. I was reading, I think it's your Raphael Samuel Memorial Lecture today, and you made a point that actually interested us a lot when we were writing the introduction about the way in which the historians, the new historians of sexuality in those early years in the 70s were also people who were enacting that in their own life, who, mm. were, who were making the history or remaking the history that they were charting. And I, I, would, I was interested in, in hearing you say a bit more about it. That's a, a very important point I think because I've been trying to write other things about my origins as a historian recently and that's one of the things I've been uh, thinking about. It was in a sense although it's about the past and although intellectually I know you can't draw a straight line between what happened in the past and the present and that's especially true of uh, LGBT identities they're much more fractured and ruptured and changeable than that suggests on the other hand, in exploring the early days of what I saw as a modern gay identity in the late 19th century, it was obviously about my life uh, in a sort of slightly filtered way. I couldn't identify with the individuals. You know, my life was nothing like Oscar Wilde's, nothing like uh, Edward Carpenter's. And yet there was a continuity. And that sense of what does that continuity mean? How we in the present relate to the past was something I've always tried to explore. And I've become 
more conscious that I've been trying to explore it as time goes on. Because my work in one sense is deconstructive. I was challenging the idea of a continuous homosexual identity throughout time. That was my um, visiting card in a sense, my intellectual visiting card. And yet at the same time, while I did that work and believed in the work I was doing, I still felt a sense of identity across time, a, a sense of something continuous, even if it wasn't a continuous identity, and even if it was more than sexual activities. It was something about relationships, it was something about a sense of comradeship, it was something about the quality of relationships, all of which have continued to be themes in my work. And doing that piece for the Ralph Samuel annual lecture, in a sense, gave me the opportunity to try to bring those themes together. Because at the same time, of course, I wasn't simply reflecting on my particular work, I was reflecting also on the journal. You know, that journal is still very important to me, um, even though I haven't been an editor for 20 years, was itself not just an intellectual forum, wasn't just any old history journal. It was actually part of the social movement of the 70s. For Raphael Samuel, I think, the journal was a social movement as much as it was anything else. And, of course, it's matured, it's changed, and it's now highly professional. It always was a highly professional journal, but certainly now it's on the shelf along with past and present and English Historical Review, the American Historical Review. It's respectable, uh, but there's still something about those roots which are very important. So, uh, to me, uh, my thinking about my work in History Workshop, it's partly about memory, it's about the fragmentary nature of a memory, about the difficulty of asserting continuity, and yet at the same time, the need we have, I have as an individual historian and others have, to make links between past and present. So the nature of those links has always fascinated me, because I don't think it's automatic, I don't think it's straightforward, I think it's very complex, and yet we still continue to make them. Did you find that that your identity and work as an activist fed seamlessly into your work as a historian, or was there a tension between those? Acute tension, because as I've told many people in lectures over the years, uh, becoming a gay historian practically ruined my career. It's, it's interesting, when I began my postgraduate research on late 19th century um, political thought, my supervisor said, you're probably the first generation where I can't guarantee a job to, because the job market had become so uh, difficult. But I doubled that difficulty by the subject area I chose. I think it would have been much easier if I'd continued as a political theorist. I wanted to do what I did. You know, I got very positive feedback from articles, from books, um, encouraged me to do more of the same. But I couldn't get a job teaching history anywhere for love or money. I struggled with research jobs, research fellowships, temporary teaching jobs for the next 20 years. You know, there were times where I thought, you know, why am I doing this? Um, and lots of uh, senior academics who had my interests in heart, at heart and were interested in my work regularly said to me, why don't you change your subject? 
why don't you choose something a bit more ordinary, a bit more conventional. Somehow, for some reason, I ploughed on. And I suppose one of the reasons I ploughed on, I was deeply committed to it. I thought it important to do it. I was getting lots of support from people outside the profession, movement people, but I was also getting encouragement from people inside the academy who thought the work I was doing was important. That sort of almost diasporic support from people in America, people in Europe, people in Australia, they gave me the support I needed to go on. And in terms of jobs, I, there were two periods when I was unemployed. But most of the time, I could get by with research jobs, doing research on other topics. So I survived. And then, by the late 80s, the job market changed. There was expansion again. And suddenly, I was marketable because uh, I had all these publications. And people were looking for people with publications. I had some administrative experience by then because I left teaching and research for five years to do an administrative job. But the major reason was that suddenly sex research seemed important, and that was because of the AIDS epidemic. Through the 80s, people were asking questions about the epidemic, which in many ways at that stage only a historian could answer. So suddenly my work was, uh, was marketable, and I got a professorship in 1990, rather to my surprise. So in a sense it made all the uh, hesitations, occlusions, mistakes of the early years irrelevant really. So by my mid-40s I was a full professor. So somehow it had all proved worthwhile. But having said that, I think it would have been worthwhile anyway. You know, there are many people who've written on sexuality who've never had um, a classic academic job. And they, in some of them, fit into Ralph's ideal of the worker historian uh, or the community historian. There are lots of people who've made sexual history possible through their own endeavours. That's true today, and it was certainly true in the 80s and 90s. But I somehow, in the end, by good luck as much as uh, planning, managed to combine both. One of the things you also did is straddle a line with sociology. That was one of the things that we noticed in drafting the introduction is in the early years of the field, the number of pieces, yours and those of other people, where there was a drawing on theory from the social sciences and then that by the 90s, which is more to literary performance, cultural mm. studies. Did you find your own work, the sources of your thought and inspiration shifted over time? <clears throat> well, the first major intellectual influence on the direction of my research was from a sociologist, Mary McIntosh. And she'd written this, what now is a famous article called The Homosexual Role, which might made a point of arguing that the, the real issue facing the sociologist and, by extension, the historian, wasn't what caused homosexuality, which is the question everyone always asks, but why homosexuality should be a problem for society. And that forced you back to ask questions about what are the social forces that created our concepts of homosexuality. That led me to the sexologist, back to Edward Carpenter, Avalok Ellis and their generation. It uh, led me back to a crucial question which 
became increasingly important to me about agency, the way in which LGBT people themselves created their, our history through their everyday practice. Uh, so I became increasingly interested in, in those themes. And those were themes that um, were congruent with what was going on in sociology, an emphasis on what was then called social deviance, an emphasis on the impact of labelling, the relationship of that to structural forces. So obviously I was exploring how changing attitudes to homosexuality fitted into wider shifts in sexual and family ideologies and structures and so on, which was you know, one of the subjects of my second book, Sex, Politics and Society. So sociology gave me a sort of theoretical structure before anything very much came along within traditional historical practice. And of course it provided me with jobs because I got a research fellowship with Mary in a sociology department at Essex. I then got a lectureship, temporary lectureship, in sociology at the University of Kent. So I relabeled myself as a sociologist. And in fact, uh, my two chairs are both in sociology, never in history. I've never had a position in the history department, but I've had a continuous experience for the last 30 years in sociology and social policy departments. None of this was planned. It was all completely unstructured. But sociology provided a home and a stimulus that uh, traditional history did not. So I suppose I've ended up as a, a sociologically-minded historian or a historically-minded sociologist, some sort of hybrid. But just to go back to History Workshop, what's interesting, looking back, is that that was one of the themes of the first issue of History Workshop Journal itself, where Raphael and Gail Steadman-Jones wrote an editorial on sociology and, and history. So again, almost unconsciously, I was drawn into a set of debates which were relevant to my own work, but also to a range of others struggling with what history was in the 1970s. When you look back at your pre-history workshop or maybe even pre-movement life, can you identify moments where your predisposition to study history or to think historically, or to imagine historically, that was set off launch pads for your historical imagination? Well, as long back as I can remember, I was always fascinated by history. When my peers in school were reading, still reading comics, I would read history books. My mother bought me for my 15th birthday, and at my request, Lord Beaverbrook's Men and Power, about machinations in the First World War. In my early teens, I used to imagine countries and monarchs and presidential systems and uh, draw maps of them and keep notes on historical events. So I was creating my own sort of history, which were based on what I read, but were uh, fantasies. Not fantasies in the sense that you see them on television today or Netflix, but actually fantasies about political events. I'd be f I was fascinated by high-level politics. So I started, this sounds terribly boring, but I started reading The Times, The Sunday Times, The Observer, in my mid-teens. Uh, our English teacher at school used to uh, bring in 
copies of The New Statesman and Spectator and Economist and The Listener after he'd read them and I would grab them and read them, mainly for the politics. So I've been fascinated by politics. I've been fascinated by history. I've been fascinated by what we mean by the past since I was 10 or 11. And that's been a continuous fascination. And then when you got involved in GLF, in, in Gay Liberation Front, did you bring that historical sensibility in with you or did that come over time to be a part of your work there? I think I... I like to think, I think historically. So as soon as I was involved in GLF, which was you know, one of these critical moments of my life where all the pieces were thrown into the air and um, landed in new places. So it was a kaleidoscopic experience. And I was heavily involved in lots of activism. But I soon realised that one of the things I could do that would contribute to the cause was actually write. So I was involved quite early on in uh, writing short pieces. I had a piece published in an early edition of Gay News in 1972 called Ideas of Gay Liberation, where I tried to trace some of the ideas that were then prevalent. Then for five years I was involved as one of the collective producing Gay Left, a socialist journal of gay liberation. And we produced two editions a year, so it was ten issues and we produced a book. And my contributions are mainly reviewing history books, writing editorials, and writing some early essays on gay history based on my wider research and fed into them. So I've always felt part of the movement, well, certainly felt that part of the movement, an activist in the movement, were an activist who could contribute best by having a sense of our history. And it's obviously no accident that a large part of my first book coming out was tracing the history of the movement. And that was the guiding thread on which I hung other debates about identity and community and ideology and so on. And it's interesting if you look at the emergence of a sort of gay historiography in the United States, it's very similar. Some of the earliest books, at least by gay men, were on the movement, tracing the history of the movement. John D'Amelio's early work, for instance. By the time he produced that, I knew him, and I knew people like Jonathan Cass. And obviously there was some sort of dialogue going on across the Atlantic. But I think we began our work in complete isolation from each other and discovered each other over the course of time word of mouth and early articles and, and so on. So there was a sort of diasporic community, I suppose, developing around early gay history. But I think the spur came very much from our individual experience of the movements and the need we felt in those early days to have a sense of where this movement came from, this extraordinary social movement that was changing our lives, what were the roots of it, what, what did it mean? How did it relate to what went on in the past? So there was very much that sort of stimulus right from the beginning. And how did, what kind of a relationship was there at that stage between an emergent gay history and an emergent feminist history? Well, certainly in my case, and I think many other cases in the States, it was very strong indeed. In the early days, you know, someone who was trained as a historian of ideas I wanted to know where the ideas of gay liberation came from 
and it wasn't obvious. Um, and I learned from early feminist writings on sexism, on female oppression, on the struggles of women in the 19th century, and so on. I became very close to Sheila Rowbottom, and we worked together on socialism and the new life. Through History Workshop, I knew the feminist historians there, Sally and uh, Anna in particular, I, I was close to. I got every encouragement from, from them to do the work I was doing, and uh, I think the work went on in parallel. But I think um, in terms of intellectual legacies, it was the conceptual breakthroughs of the women's movement that was really important to my own work. I mean, the inspiration of the movement itself, women's liberation movement, was obviously uh, mind-blowing. And in those early days, gay liberation seemed very much secondary to that. I think it went in different directions in the end. But I couldn't have done the work I did without the influence of feminist thinking in general, and particular feminists in particular. One of the key influences was Judith Walkowitz, because her early essays on um, prostitution in 19th century Portsmouth and so on, and then her book, her first book, were crucial to my um, conceptualisation of what was happening in the 19th century because uh, she describes very much the labelling of uh, fallen women and the way that uh, fed into the development of uh, uh, more or less uh, an identity as a prostitute, uh, the categorisation and how that Im impinged on uh, social perceptions and self-identifications. And that was precisely the same pattern I was seeing in um, the emergence of... Uh, uh, of homosexual identities in the late 19th century. And that was a very important confirmation of my own findings, really, because apart from Mary McIntosh's uh, essay, no one had quite conceived in the, of the history of homosexuality as a process of categorisation and self-categorisation, identification and disidentification. Uh, of uh, push and pull, which I saw as a key mechanism for the emergence of recognisably modern homosexual identities from the late 19th century onwards. And it's very much the same sort of themes were going around in Judith's work. And there were others, lots of others as well. I, I'd be stimulated to follow a certain line of thought by reading in the early feminist journals, a particular article, and so on. Some feminist anthropology was very important, and that again linked through Mary McIntosh's essay, because a part of hers is exploring anthropological evidence on homosexuality in the past and in other cultures. So lots of crisscrossing, and all these ideas were sort of buzzing around in my head. And in a sense, writing, the act of writing, the process of writing was a very important process in me making sense of all these sorts, making some pattern about what uh, was going on, had gone on, is going on. So I felt very much part of a wider intellectual current and political current, embracing women's liberation and, and gay liberation. And when did you encounter Foucault's work on sexuality? Well, I was already far advanced in my own thinking by the time I read uh, Foucault 
with any seriousness. I read Magnus and Civilization in translation around about the mid-1970s, and I quote it in Coming Out, which was finished at the end of 1976, published in 1977. What I didn't know when I wrote that book was, of course, that this my finishing Coming Out coincided with the appearance in Paris of uh, the first volume of Foucault's History of Sexuality. And after I finished Coming Out, certainly after, yes, after it went to press and so on, I read Foucault in translation, the first volume. And of course that was another absolutely critical moment in my intellectual development because, well, you know, to put out the most crude, here was a leading European intellectual who was saying things very similar to what I'd written. I've often been seen since as someone who is a sort of an heir of Foucault. The actual history is completely different. Quite separately, he came up with some very similar conclusions to, to mine. Mine was based on empirical work and influenced by people like Mary, sociologists like Ken Plummer, American sociologists like Gagnon and Simon, but not at that stage by Foucault. So uh, Foucault's influence is much more apparent in sex politics in society. It's not there at all in coming out. And again, it's very similar to what you can see in Judith Walkowitz's work. She had similar influences, I think, for her early work, from labelling theory, from sociological theories of deviance and so on. And it's only when her book came out in the early 80s, bringing it all together, that you see a reconceptualization around ideas from Foucault. But neither of us could be truly called Foucauldians. We used his work, but I think it's adapted to the particular intellectual circumstances we were engaged with and interested in. I wanted to pick up on something you said earlier about the impact of the AIDS crisis on the kinds of well, both the climate in which you were working, but also the questions that you began to ask in your work and that other historians of sexuality began to ask in their work. Well, just at the simplest, the AIDS epidemic posed, I think, dramatic questions about the nature of identity. Because, you know, AIDS revealed the, the separation between identity and sexual practice. Obviously, many, many people who had to live with HIV and AIDS were gay, gay men particularly. But as the epidemic spread, it became obvious that gayness was a contingent category. It couldn't describe the lives of everyone who was falling victim to the epidemic, especially outside North America and Europe. So what did gay gayness mean? What was the meaning of homosexuality, bisexuality? And that, I think, completely problematised the notion of a fixed and eternal gay identity. Now that's what much of my work had been trying to argue before that. Met lots of resistance. And it continues to meet a lot of resistance because it's much easier to conceptualise homosexuality as something that's inherent, inborn, there's a gay gene, there's a gay brain, and all that sort of thing. I was always deeply sceptical about that, 
because it didn't seem to me to fit into the evidence of how homosexuality, bisexuality, gender diversity were lived in the past. So the epidemic, to my mind, fitted very obviously into a, a problematic which queried the fixity of identity. And lots of the best research that developed subsequently precisely explored the uh, contingency of identity and the gap between identities and sexual practice. And that became a, a leading theme of much of the work on the social aspects of AIDS subsequently. So there was a sense in which what may have seemed fairly esoteric interests in uh, the variability and flexibility and fluidity of identities as I tried to explore in those earlier years, and the experience of AIDS. Suddenly, that sort of work, problematising sexuality and the fixity of sexual categories, was relevant to, to understanding the, uh, the rapid spread of the epidemic. That's just one example. You know, that also, historical work was important for the understanding of the epidemic in relationship to the history of epidemics themselves the changing forms of sexual regulation, the role of medicine in categorising certain classes of uh, sexual deviants and so on. So there's a whole body of work that had developed amongst feminist and lesbian and gay historians in the 70s and early 80s that suddenly seemed relevant to real problems on the ground as thrown up by the epidemic. And of course the epidemic was also associated with a counter-attack from more conservative forces in the States and in Europe, particularly Britain. And again, one can understand, and I suppose this is the major theme that I wanted to emphasise increasingly, the way in which sexuality has come to the heart of our politics in a number of different ways, and the way in which sexuality is played by conservative forces and continues to be. It's no accident that fundamentalism, various fundamentalisms, are very much obsessed with sexuality and family. And you can see today in the streets of Birmingham in all this fuss about uh, sex education in, in schools. It's still very much a live issue. So I think the experience of AIDS, there was an existential reason for trying to understand it better because it was affecting the community I associated with, I belonged to, and friends I knew and loved but also a, a broader historical issue about the way in which sexuality plays a role in, in wider social movements and forces. Sexuality isn't just about sexuality. Sexuality throws a strong headlamp onto a whole variety of different uh, social and political issues. So we're now uh, 50 years on from Stonewall. Um, history of sexuality, which when you first published your article with HWJ was not a field, is now very much yeah. a field, um, an established field of scholarship. And we're in a political climate that, you know, maybe who knows who would have anticipated where we are right now. But what what are your feelings and thoughts about the role of a of a historian, of a scholar in response to that climate? 50 years on from, from the liberation movements that really got this field its start? 
That's a very interesting question because I think it's very easy to assume that because sexuality is uh, now an established part of the academy and there are professors of sexual history uh, and so on in many Western, at least, universities, it's easy to assume that somehow it's all been mainstreamed, it's all been consolidated into professional history. And of course, in many ways, it has. You know, I'm delighted to see so many younger scholars whose work I admire reaching um, senior academic positions very early on in their career, which was impossible 50 years ago. And that's great. It's a recognition of the quality of the work. And that's something I've always wanted to emphasise, that even though I might be explicit in what I write about where I come from and the political roots of what I was doing, I've always wanted to display in my work and the work of others the highest academic standards. So it can't be criticised for shoddy scholarship. It's high scholarship, but there's a political root there somehow. So part of me, I suppose, is sorry that sexual history has become depoliticised on one level. I'm glad it's been mainstreamed in many parts of the world. I'm glad it's become professional. I'm glad the highest standards are being expected. All that's great and something I barely dreamed was possible 50 years ago. Yet I think there's still a feeling that it's not quite there yet. And trying to pinpoint what my unease is about, I think the unease is that people in the profession still regard sexuality as something that's separated off. It's a worthy subject in its own right. It's added a lot to our knowledge of the past. We were neglectful of it in, in that past. And uh, good on you for doing this work. But what it hasn't done, I think, is fundamentally shift our perception of how sexuality and perhaps even more obviously gender is written into the structure of the past as well as the present and it's not simply an add-on it's there at the center of uh, um, our understanding should be there at the center of our understanding of of the past you know i think i said this in in my sex politics and society in the early 80s you can't really understand the french revolution and the panic it produced without some sense of the sexual connotations of that time you can't understand the um, campaigns against women working in the mines or in the cotton mills without understanding the way sexuality came in that discourse you can't understand the late 19th century early 20th century discourses on imperialism without understanding attitudes to women, anxieties about masculinity. You can't understand the welfare state without understanding the way in which it was structured around a binary division between men and women, the way it, it centred on the family, the way in which it othered those who didn't fit into this notion. All of these things are around us still. And the work has gone on, and there's some wonderful work exploring all these aspects. And yet somehow, when you read a standard history book, it's still there as an add-on chapter, if it's there at all, and it's not feeding our understanding of the nature of the welfare state, most obviously, or on the um, changes in attitudes in the 1970s and 80s.
the great liberalisation and what that was about and the way in which today in other parts of the world the rise of reactionary forces is very much in the first place focused around sexuality. So sexuality has to be at the heart of our understanding. So I feel that despite all the great things that have happened, there's still a failure on the part of the historical profession as a whole in understanding the power and relevance of sexuality and gender in shaping the world we live in. Many thanks to Geoffrey Weeks for taking part in this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.